Well, good morning or good evening, everybody. How you doing? Habit, sorry. Let me ask you guys a question. Are, are you ready for tomorrow? Let me ask the kids. Kids, are you ready for tomorrow? Yeah, awesome. I'm getting ready. I, uh, this is like the first year in a long time I have not ha had to make a, a trip to Walgreens, uh, you know. By the way, the Walgreens at, at Thomasville Road, just north of I-10, open 24 hours Christmas Eve for any of you guys that are like sweating right now. My name's Eric, and I'm the, the lead pastor here at E3. I want to thank you. Uh, thank you so much for spending your Christmas Eve with us, and I want to welcome you here. We're excited that you're spending some time with us. Um, we're going to be talking today or tonight about the, the, the meaning of Christmas, and just some things that, as Dan said, have been impacting me, and I've been wrestling with kind of in a joyful way as, as I've, just been, I've just been interacting with, with some thoughts and ideas around Christmas that have been really just touching me and, and hitting me. So we're going to do that. But before we do that, um, we're just going to hear, as Dan said, the, the account from Luke, one of the writers of the Gospels, of the birth of Jesus. So Karen, would you just read that for us, please? Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 20. At that time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken since Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of Ken David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in, stri in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger where there was no lodging, for there was no lodging available for them. That night, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them, Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David, and you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped in snugly, and strips of cloth laying in a manger. Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others and the armies of heaven praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. When the angels had returned to heaven and the shepherds, then the shepherds said to each other, Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby laying in the manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had told them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished, but Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying, praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. 
Thanks, guys. And in and of itself, it's a pretty simple story. You know, there's no, there's no you know, calculus or, or physics that you have to do to hear that story. Uh, a man and a woman go to a town because of a census, and, uh, and they have a, have a baby. And, okay, yeah, there's some angels and some supernatural stuff going on. But, but just take that stuff out. It's a, it's a simple story. But uh, just because it's simple doesn't mean that it doesn't have profound implications for the way, at least, that I live. And, uh, and that's what we're going to explore tonight. But I want to start off with um, asking you guys a rhetorical question, which is just pastor speak for don't talk to, back to me here. But I want to just plant a thought in your head, and, and maybe you have done this before. Have you ever walked in late to a, a movie, walked in late to uh, maybe a theater production, a musical, a play? Have you ever walked in late to some kind of work of art where it's already been progressing and you're late to the party? I've done this. Um, because pastors keep odd hours, sometimes I come home later at night, and I'll come home sometimes, and my various members of my family will be on the couch watching some show. And not, not so much with sitcoms, because they're just 20 minutes, and you can usually unpack things pretty fast. But when, but when it's a longer piece, you know, maybe an hour or a movie or something like that, and you walk into the middle of it, Sometimes you have to spend some time getting acclimated to what's going on, you know? Anybody know exactly what I'm talking about? So I'll sit down, and I start asking the late guy questions, you know? Who is this character, you know? What, what are they doing? Why, why are they fighting and everything? And, and most of the time, my family will entertain my questions, you know? And they'll explain, you know, blah, 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 blah shit. You know, every once in a while... Uh, I'll just get banished. You ever ever been that guy where like you just ask too many questions and then finally they're like, get out. Just go stream it another time. I um I did this once just um I did this once with my with my daughter. She's a Doctor Who fan and she didn't even try. And I was like, now what's going on? Now who's the doctor? And she's like, Dad, just get out. You just don't get it. Um when we when we show up late to things or when when we only interact with sort of the back half of a story, uh, it can be confusing. And we don't always understand the journey of how we got to wherever it is we are in the movie or the play or the musical. And what I want to do is spend some time talking about the story of God, all right? Because we are at, in, in, the, in the universe of faith, we're at a beginning, Right? Tomorrow we celebrate the beginning of the life of Jesus. And the life of Jesus starts uh, in the Bible. It's this manger. Um, cradle is fine with us. Uh, but Jesus' life moves through time from a cradle. And then if you just kind of envision this, uh, this middle section of a life full of teaching and miracles and healing. And then it ends later with a cross, an execution, a resurrection story, and so on. And it's easy for us to get focused on sometimes different parts of the story. But because of where we're at in the season, I want to talk about the beginning, okay? And, and the idea that, that his story moves through time just started me thinking about the way different things begin. And so I, I, I interact a lot with different forms of art and so I started to think about way different forms of art, especially art that is that moves, that has a time factor. So not necessarily a painting or visual art, but, 
But art like, you know, film or literature or music, that moves through time. You understand? Like you sit down and listen to a song and that takes time. And how different works of art begin. What are the openings like? And what does an opening do? And so uh, I was in bands for a long time. I, I released a few different records. And one of the last things you do when you make a record, anybody remember records? Like when it was like a collection of songs and you kind of had to sort through. One of the last things you do is you sort through the songs. It's called sequencing the record. And so you look at the collection of songs that you've recorded and you figure out what's going to come first, what's going to come last, what's the middle look like. And I don't know if you know this, but this is actually a process that you have to go through because you don't just throw the songs out there willy-nilly. You don't just throw the songs out in the order they were recorded. You're trying to take people on some kind of journey, right? And so after making a bunch of records and, and just being fascinated with music, I have my own theories about sequencing, but I won't share them with you now. But what I do want to share with you is some of my favorite openings in music and in other art forms. So we got some stuff queued up for you. This is one of my favorite openings of uh, music. Anybody know what it is? Zeppelin. That's right. It's funny, you know, I, we, we're in, in the business, in the pastoring business, we're told never to compare gatherings. But I'm going to compare a gathering, like the first gathering. They all knew it was Zeppelin, but everybody was like, we're in church, so nobody say Led Zeppelin. So they were all like, I don't, I don't know who that is and everything. And I was like, it's Led, and the, it's Led Zeppelin, you know. And, and here's the deal about the opening of, that's Led Zeppelin 1, the first track. And for me as a musician, I hear those first two hits, bow, bow. And I know exactly what that record's about. It's going to be swaggering. It's going to be rhythmic. It's going to be rock and roll. Amen? Next track. Who is it? You too. First track of uh, Octung Baby, Zoo Station, it's called. That was out in like 1991, 92. I was a huge U2 fan for a while. I could have picked a, a variety of different opening songs from U2 records. But that, but that guitar riff... Like all of a sudden, I knew we were not in Kansas anymore. And if you were a U2 fan before this record, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It was like, whoa, what has happened? And the thing about a good, effective opening of a work of art is it pulls you into a universe. Sometimes immediately. Sometimes you're just like, it's, a, it's almost like a whiplash situation. You're like, whoa, where did we just go? And particularly with Octung Baby, I, uh, it took me uh, days to get into that universe because I was like, where are we now? But that's what good openings do. Here, here's a couple openings from, from literature. And, and just deal with this because this is my list. You can share your list later. <laughs> Tell me what this is from. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Not a nasty, dirty, wet hole filled with the ends of worms and an oozy, sm oozy smell, nor yet a dry, bare, sandy hole with nothing in it to sit down or to eat. It was a hobbit hole, and that meant comfort. It's the beginning of the hobbit. Duh. How about this? Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four, Privet Drive, were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. What is it? Harry Potter. And, and I want to suggest to you that, like, 
those first sentence of those novels, you are entering a universe. You are, you are being drawn into a new reality, right? And, and, and there's another genre that this is especially powerful for, and that is film. So I want to share with you one of the, uh, an opening scene of one of the most uh, popular and landmark films in cinema history. So roll this. I believe in America. America has made my fortune. And I raised my daughter in the American fashion. I gave her freedom, but I taught her neighbor to dishonor her family. Godfather. Okay. And, and, and I re- uh, listened to an interview recently with Francis Ford Coppola, and he talked about that scene. Okay, that's an opening that pulls you into the Godfather universe. The Godfather is essentially a story about power and how power is exercised, particularly in the form of uh, the Corleone family. And so I don't know if you guys have know this, but the Godfather is based on a novel. Uh, Coppola set aside the first 17 pages of the novel and chose that scene 17 pages into the story to open his film. And the Godfather, if you know a man that's got machine guns and gangsters and all kinds of, you know, killings and drama and everything, and yet it starts with this opening shot on this guy that says America. And he's talking about justice and not getting justice and how he has to seek justice outside the system, so to speak. And instantly when you watch that scene of the Godfather, you are pulled into the universe that the Godfather wants to show to you. It doesn't, the, the, the universe unfolds over time, but from the very beginning, it's there. When you, when you walk in late, let's say to the Godfather, you might not get that whole story. You might not get that universe that you're pulled into at the beginning. And you might just sit around going like, why is everybody shooting up everybody else? What, what's going on here? When you come in late to a story, you miss something of the story. And that's what I want to suggest to you sometimes happens in our faith journey, particularly around, well, let's just say Christian churches, because Jesus' story has a beginning, a middle, as we said, with teachings and a life and an end. But if you hang around churches, particularly Christian churches, a lot of times what you get is a preoccupation with the end of the story, which is valuable and cosmic and life-changing. Jesus is executed, crucified on a cross, dies, resurrected, and then we actually, the, the story in a way doesn't end, it's still going on. And then if you hang around churches enough, you also hear a lot about the life of Jesus his teachings, his healings, his miracles, the way he interacts with people, and that is critical and it's valuable. But we are here tonight to talk about the beginning. And if you only go to church and hear or or interact with the teachings of Jesus, let me tell you, you will be challenged. And if you base your life on the teachings of Jesus, let me tell you, you're living a good life. But that's not the whole story. And if you only ever think about the cross of Jesus, man, yes, you have a picture of faith. You have a picture of spirituality, but you don't have the whole thing. And we're in a season of beginnings. In a few months, we will get to the cross in March and Easter. 
with Lent. But right now we're going to talk about this for just a few minutes. You see, to drive this home, uh, there's a passage that one of the first church uh, leaders, first Christian leaders wrote to a church in Galatia. I want to read it for you. It comes out of, uh, of the letter to the church at Galatia. And a guy named Paul wrote these words. It says, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman. All right, if you hang around church long enough, I think what, what struck me about that passage as I thought about it this week was that I think a lot of us would expect that passage to say that when the time came, God's son was crucified because the cross is important to us. But that's not what the text says. The text actually says that when the time was right, another writer in the New Testament said at the culmination of the ages, so it's like, it's no, the timing is not an accident. But when the time was just right, God sent his son to be born. Not just to teach and not just to die, but to be born. To say it really uh, succinctly to me, it means that our salvation story does not just involve the cross. It actually involves the cradle as well. The story of salvation begins here, tonight, tomorrow morning, continues through the teachings, and eventually culminates in the cross. So what does it mean? Like, that's, that's what my job is tonight. That's what I've been doing this week. So if it starts at the cradle, what does the cradle have to say to, to me? What does the cradle have to say to salvation story? One of the other gospel writers, a guy named Matthew, he was writing the birth account and he referenced this uh, prediction out of the Old Testament, Isaiah, that simply said this, the virgin or the young lady, Mary, we know her, will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him what? Emmanuel. We sang that song at the beginning of the gathering. Emmanuel, which means God with us. The cradle means God with us. Again, this writer of Hebrews, we don't know who, uh, who he or she was, but they spent time in the book of Hebrews wrestling through what does it mean that God came and entered into human reality. And so these are just some excerpts from the book of Hebrews, how bad they were wrestling and trying to express this. They say in chapter two that Jesus shared in our humanity. He shared in our humanity. He was fully human in every way. And just so you know, uh, do you know what the Greek actually says there for every way? Every way. Every way. It says because he suffered, he's able to help us. And then it says because he was tempted like we were, he's able to help those of us who are tempted. So what, what the writer of Hebrews is getting at is like, look, when, when Jesus decides to start, when God decides to start the salvation story with the cradle, there is something immediately that he is embracing about us. And that is, he's coming in all the way to humanity. So, this is our opening. 
<laughs> this is the way our song and our story opens. This is what catapults us into a new universe. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is the, the opening shot of our movie. This is the thing that if we look at it and we look long enough, we're like, man, the world is somehow not the same anymore. And I'm just going to suggest you a couple of different ways that it's different. Again, um, we sang that song, Emmanuel. It means God with us. But it's not just God with us. Because if it's God with us, guess what it also is? It's God with me. And it's God with you. And it's God with you. And God with you and you and you. Because we are us. Amen? God is here with me. And the writer of Hebrews says, how many ways? In every way. And so how does this play itself in, out in my life? Well, let me just suggest a couple of things. Tomorrow morning when you wake up and you're celebrating with your family, guess what? God is with you. In your joy, he's there. Anything that brings a smile to your face, anything that makes your heart beat a little faster, anything that makes your spirit rise, a good book, a good song, a good meal, guess what? God is with you in that moment because he's there in every way. But guess what? When you're done opening all the presents and all the wrapping paper is sitting around and it's time to put it all in a garbage bag and take it out to the curb, God's there with that too. In the normalness of our lives, in the mundane parts of our lives, guess what? God is with us because he's in, he's in how many ways? Every way. And so I think some of us think that God is only there in the spiritual parts of our lives when we're in a space like this or when we're praying or when we're behaving ourselves. But what the cradle says to me is that no, 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 no. Actually, there is no such moment as a non-spiritual moment because of the opening of our salvation story. Every moment when I'm standing at the curb wheeling my trash can out for the umpteenth time, that is an opportunity for me to experience the God of the universe. Now, maybe the heavens aren't going to part and I'm not going to see, you know, the face of Jesus in my trash. But if you know me well enough, you know that, boy, sometimes just a feeling of peace and contentment and everything is all right in the world and I love my family, that's the presence of God. In my life, that doesn't happen by accident. And then lastly... It also means that if God is with us in every way, he's also with us in our brokenness. Tomorrow morning when your kids work your last nerve or tomorrow morning when your parents' kids work your last nerve, guess what? God's with you in that too. Or how about this? I'm sure in a, in a room like this, there's people who, when I say that word brokenness, uh, your list is, well, you don't know, like, what's going on in my life is a lot worse than losing my temper because some wrapping paper got left on the floor. But guess what? God's with you in that. He was tempted. He knows everything that you have experienced. He knows because he entered into every single way. You could see this play itself out in Jesus' life. When, he, when he's walking around the, the ancient Near East, Jesus has this way of sitting down with people who are really outside. They've really gone off the rails. 
And he sits down with them and he says, you know what? Guess what? I'm here with you in this moment. Before you turn your life around, before you said, decide I'm going to get it right, before you decide to clean yourself off, take a shower and wipe the dust off you, Jesus is like, I'm already there with you. I know and I love it and I accept you. The other thing that our opening says to me is that vulnerability is okay. Because there's nothing more vulnerable than a human child. You know what I'm saying? Utterly dependent on his mother. Jesus is vulnerable. God knows what it's like to be vulnerable. So you know what I have to think about? I have to think about all the ways that I keep my defenses up. And I think that it's not okay to be vulnerable because I have to be tough or I have to be reserved or I have to be this or I have to be that. Guess what? The cradle says it is okay to let down your guard and to not have the answers. The cradle also says to me in an amazing way that this story is about God coming to me and not me coming to God. See, a lot of us live this life where we try to think if I, can just, if I could just be better, if I can just reach a little higher, if I can try a little bit harder, then one day I will reach God. And God's like, no, you don't understand. I, I came to you. I came to your space. I moved into your neighborhood. And I just think, I don't have to run anymore. And neither do you. Because God has already come. And then the last thing, I'll just leave you with this as, as we go to the table. I love this. The cradle says to me that anything is possible. Anything is possible. Because who would have ever thought? You know, you ever think that like maybe at the birth, there was somebody sitting around going, well, I guess it's about time because I saw this coming a long time ago. If you read the story, people were all, they were blown away. Their minds were blown. They didn't know what to make of the fact that the Messiah was here. And I'd sit around and I'm like, man, you know what the cradle, the cradle says to me that there always can be room for change. And God does unexpected things at the deepest, darkest places sometimes where we've lost all hope. I look at that cradle and I go, well, I never could have predicted that cradle. So maybe there is an opportunity for something different in my life and maybe in your life. Maybe somebody has walked into this room today and you're like, you know what? The thing that I need most is I need the next six months of my life to not be like the last six months. And somebody's walked into this room maybe and you say, you know what I desperately need? I need my story to change, but it hasn't changed for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. The cradle says, guess what? God changes stories because it's unexpected and it's a gift. And so because of that, we can have this word, hope. And as somebody else in the, in the New Testament wrote, uh, Paul wrote a letter to the church at Rome and he has these words. We can have hope and hope does not disappoint. Amen. Amen.
I look at the stars and wonder, how old is the universe? All kinds of estimates have been made, and as far as we can tell, not one is accurate. All we know is that once upon a time, or rather, once before time, Christ called everything into being with a great breath of creativity. Waters, land, green growing things, birds and beasts, and finally, human creatures. The beginning, the genesis. Not in ordinary earth days. The Bible makes it quite clear that God's time is different from our time. But in God's good time, the universe came into being, opening up from a tiny flower of nothingness to great clouds of hydrogen gas to swirling galaxies. In God's good time came solar systems and planets, and ultimately this planet on which I stand on this evening as the earth makes its graceful dance around the sun. God called it good, very good. A sky full of God's children, each galaxy, each star, each living creature, each particle and subatomic particle of creation, we are all children of the maker. From a subatomic particle with a lifespan of a few seconds to a galaxy with a lifespan of billions of years to us human creatures somewhere in the middle in size and age. We are made in God's image and we are, as Christ promised us, God's children by adoption and by grace. Children of God made in God's image. How? God's explanation is to send us Jesus, the incarnate one, God enfleshed. It is love, God's limitless love, and fleshing that love into a form of a human being, Jesus, the Christ, fully human and fully divine. Was there a moment known only to God when all the stars held their breath, when the galaxies paused in their dance for a fraction of a second, and the Word, who had called it all into being, went with all his love into the womb of a young girl. And the universe started to breathe again, and the ancient harmonies resumed their song, and the angels clapped their hands for joy. Power, greater power than we can imagine, abandoned as the word knew the powerlessness of the unborn child, still unformed, taking up almost no space in the great ocean of amniotic fluid, unseeing, unhearing, unknowing, slowly growing as any human embryo grows, arms and legs and head, eyes, mouth, nose, slowly swimming into life until the ocean in the womb is no longer large enough and it is time for birth. Christ, the second person of the Trinity, Christ, the maker of the universe, or perhaps many universes, willingly and lovingly leaving all that power and coming to this poor, sin-filled planet to live with us for a few years to show us what we ought to be and could be. Christ came to us as Jesus of Nazareth holy human and holy divine to show us what it means to be made in God's image. Jesus was the firstborn, 
of many brethren. I stand on the deck of my cottage looking at the sky full of God's children, and I know that I am one of them. I don't know about you, but one thing that I do know is I'm one of God's children. And as uh, maybe you guys don't know me from anybody, but as a human being and as a pastor and as a guy who's lived some life that he's not too proud of, I can tell you that you're children of God too. No matter what you've done or haven't done, we are all God's children by adoption and by grace because the cradle came to us. We didn't go to the cradle. We didn't go to God. He just said, let me come into your neighborhood. The, uh, the Lord's table in communion is also called in, in some faith traditions the Eucharist. Anybody know what that means? Eucharist means good gift, just like that cradle. And most of the time, the Eucharist is associated with the cross and Jesus' death because that's kind of when it takes place in Jesus' story. But tonight, can I suggest to you that maybe the Eucharist is the cradle as much as it is the cross? And that we can be just as grateful for the universe that the opening of the cradle pulled us into? A universe where the unexpected can happen. A universe where gifts are given to us. And no matter how hard we try to reach up or maybe lay in the gutter, the cradle still comes. In our joy, in our brokenness, in the normalness of our life, the cradle comes. <laughs> 